HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Levo. Simple, potent, at-home herbal infusions at the push of a button. Learn more at levooil.com and feed your enthusiasm. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L.com. Hello, it's Sam from The Grape Nation. Our show this week is the last show of 2020, and boy, what a year it's been. If you have a chance, please listen to episode 168 with Josh Green, editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. This is his fourth year on the show, and we discuss 2020, the year in wine. Our episode this week was recorded earlier this year, pre-COVID-19, at the Naples Winter Wine Festival. We talked to some terrific Pinot Noir makers from Oregon. First, Larry Stone from Lingua Franca. Then we speak with Jay Boberg and Jean-Nicolas Mayo from Nicolas J. Enjoy. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey on the Heritage Radio Network. We are at the Naples Winter Wine Festival, benefiting the Naples Children and Education Foundation. Our guest is Larry Stone, a multi-award winning master sommelier and educator. Larry has a deep wine history in the finest restaurants. He pursued his dream to make wine and owns a winery now. Larry is the founder of Lingua Franca Wines in Oregon. Welcome to The Grape Nation, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here, Sam. Thank you for sitting down with us. I've been meaning to get you on the show, and it was convenient that you were here at Naples, so I made sure that we could sit down. Um, you've been at this a while, but that doesn't mean everybody knows you know, who you are and what you're doing, and I think the fun part is that you have a very interesting background. So give us a quick background on your journey in life and wine. <laughs> That got you to, I think, a dream, which is your own winery. And there's a lot of hospitality in there, you know, an MS, mm-hmm. you know, to walk me through that. Well, it was a long journey. It was a journey that started at the beginning of my life when my both parents came from families which were very involved in food. My father's family had been bakers 
in uh, in uh, Poland, part of Poland that was Austro-Hungary, so it was Hungary at the time, and uh, Austria, I should say, at the time. And then my mother grew up in a far in a village in Romania where they were farmers and had been for many generations as well. But they also made wine. In fact, my mother's maiden name is Weinberger, which means uh, Weinberger is a vineyard uh, owner or vineyard grower, grape grower. We'd probably say in English or vigneron in French. Right. So it's a very good name. That's what winemakers are in French, and they made wine actually. But that was only one of many agricultural products, and my mother didn't emphasize that at all. Uh, despite the family name, she said, "No, I grew up on a farm. We had goats, sheep. Uh, we had uh, geese and and uh, cattle." And my the thing she was most proud of was the thing that her father was probably proud of, which was that he was the town miller, because it was a communal mill, and every farmer made a who wanted to run the mill had to put a contract in, and the town council had to approve it. It was a polycultural, multicultural city because of its situation in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So she grew up learning seven languages when she wow. was, because there were f six official languages basically in the village she grew up in. If you were a farmer and you wanted to do something like that, you had to know them. And uh, But my dad worked at the Pike Place Market in Seattle where I grew up. He had emigrated because of the war and fought in the Second World War, like even at the Battle of the Bulge uh, with, uh, you know, and... Uh, Food related at Pike? Well, but food at the Pike Place there market. There flowers he, there he, and he, other he tchotchkes. No, no, it was food. No, yeah. no, that's today. Back yeah. then, back then, it, it was, was a farmer's market, and he was actually a high staller. So he bought produce from the farmers and then resold them, oh. which is a business that his mother had in Vienna when he was a kid after the First World War. <laughs> uh, he helped his mother, and that's how he got the job. And so I was at the market with him. I learned about food. I learned about pro products, and they had wine at the table at least once a week, and I would try to blind taste it by the time I was seven, because my, <laughs> by, the, by the time I was seven, my dad joined my uncle. My mother's sister married a, a gentleman from Sweden who imported Swedish crystals, so they had decanters and wine glasses, and I'd go to their house, and all the bottles of wine had been decanted ahead of time. It was only in a beautiful crystal decanter. I'd say, let me see if I could blind taste. I don't know why. I think I must have seen some film or some TV show where someone was blind tasting, and I think I thought I, thought I could do it, because I thought I had a good nose. I started cooking at the time as well, and I could identify the wines pretty soon. I could identify the varietals. I could identify whether they're old world or new world. But it was a limited set that my parents and my aunt and uncle drank. That you were exposed to. Yeah, that I was exposed to. But you hit to. the ground running. But I, you were nailing it early? Yeah, I was nailing it early, so <laughs> I thought it was funny. They let me do it. And that led to making wine when I was 13. And then I went into chemistry in college. And I realized I hated being in a lab because the thing I loved about chemistry was the way things went together. So I loved the theory. And I loved cooking, and I loved wine, wine making, and then uh, so I went into humanities. And when I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I got my first job as a sommelier. But by that time, I had already lived in Europe. I had a Fulbright scholarship, Jesus and I Mary. yeah, and I was studying. I was finishing my doctoral dissertation so I could be a professor. I was already an acting instructor, and a, luckily, a friend of mine, who was uh, studying medieval poetry, who had to work as a bartender. I was teaching English and, and, and German. Why are all the medieval poets right. bartenders? Right. Well, because, you know, there's no, no one wants it. <laughs> there's right. a very limited group of people. That's so, right. so he, uh, but he made a lot of money writing uh, tech books. Tech, you know, uh, the, uh, the original, you know, in the old days, you had books that came with your computer that explained how to run them. So he wrote the manuals for the computers, and he made a fortune with Microsoft, and he retired at age 40. But, wow. I, but he, he, he regrets that. He got me the job as a sommelier. He was a bartender. He said, you could get this job as a sommelier, work less hours, fewer hours, 
and make more money than teaching full time, which you're doing at the UW. I was an instructor, an acting instructor at the UW, three so classes. That, that guy, that friend, was the transition. He was a to transition. What is now your life and then and career within four years, I became the best sommelier in the United States. And then uh, six years later, uh, in six years, yeah, right? I became. I won the competition of best sommelier in America. And then two years after that, I won the title of the best sommelier in the world. So Where does then the I became, and the same year I became all. a master sommelier. So I won the title for best sommelier in the world about two months after I got the title of, uh, you know, got the diploma of master sommelier. And I was the ninth in America. And That's now, right. The ninth. That's worth noting because, you know, I've been doing the show for over three years and I've had a bunch of sommeliers on. But, you know, we go back, you were there. What I'm interested about is... Once you figured this was your love and you put your, were all your waking hours studying and tasting? I mean, was it? Well, I studied more. The, the MS. I mean, you were on the ground with practical experience. Yeah. But, but to get the MS. No, actually, that that's kind of embarrassing because you know when I was already twelve, I started making. I told you I made wine when I was thirteen. By the time I was thirteen, I'd read Alexis Lachine's Encyclopedia of Wine. <laughs> I had read Hugh. Jo you know, Hugh Johnson didn't come out yet, so it was later. But I also read. Uh, uh, there was there were books by, uh, Kunky and. Uh, and uh, Maynard Amarine. I read, I read all the college textbooks on wine because, as I said, I been trained. I already trained in chemistry as a high school student. You I was an honor student. I was a high school student. I was a National Merit Scholar. So I read all these books. It was fun. For me, it wasn't serious science. It was applied science, and it was easy for me to understand. And I loved wine, so I wanted to know the difference between the acid structure of a Mosul and a Rhine Riesling, for example. So I studied that, and I studied the panoply of acids in them and the varying uh, percentages, you know, the, how they related. So when I made my first wine, I already knew that I should have a little more malic acid remaining in the wine than I, than I would if it, if it were from the Rhine. I, and so This the, was all very key to the type of wines you wanted. Yeah, yeah. I loved uh, definition and acid. I loved uh, Loire Valley wines and Chablis and, and Mosul more than Rhine, and Mosul's are. And so I loved the slatiness of the mineral qualities because they were so interesting and unique. And so when I, when, by the time I studied for the master test, I had already studied for two what years. What year, for the, just for context? That, that was 1988. 88. And I was also that same, I didn't want to take it because that same year was the title for best sommelier in the world. And I was studying for that because I had won the title of best in North in America. Your time could only be pointed towards one of those. That's what I months, thought. Right? Yeah, but then Fred Dame came around. I crossed paths with Fred Dame. And Fred Dame said, you have to take the master's. And I said, why? He said, I'm studying for this thing. And he goes... You're the best sommelier in America. You've been, uh, you've won that award. Why don't sounds you? Sounds a little selfish. And he goes, he goes. You have to show all the other sommeliers, the young sommeliers who are trying to train in the United States now, that it's important to become a master sommelier. You may not pass, but you have to take it. I said, it's only three months from now. I've been training for this French-only exam, based, and and I'm not ready because I don't think I can pass it. Because even though I did know more about North American wines and other wines and German wines and there's a service yeah. aspect and yeah. all the other. Well, I I'd been working as a right. sommelier already, so that wasn't that hard for me. But the, I was worried about the study, the theoretical aspect, because I didn't train for it. But, but then I knew like I was like the stuff that you you know have been just taking in all the. Well, I have been, and so basically, I had three months to study every to catch up. It was more like review all the things I already knew about the new world, and and I and in three months uh, I had the test, and I thought, well, I won't pass, but I'll I'll view it as an opportunity to learn what the test is about, and then I can come back and take it later. But it'll be good training. What I thought in my mind was it would be good training. For the world championship because the last 
test I took that I won was two years earlier, and so I hadn't taken any tests since then. I was out of the test competition mode. You kind of, it's so intense, you just drop it for a while. Yeah, your mind. Well, well, you just don't think that way. Right. A competition is very specific. Knowledge is one thing, but a, a test it. or a competition is different. And so I thought, I'll take this test. It'll be good preparation. Just as a test, it's good preparation to get in the mindset of what I have to do in a test. It'll be different questions, but the framework will be the same. And so when I took the test, I was the only one to pass that year. And I think I passed really predominantly because I had no pressure. I didn't think I could pass. I didn't expect to pass. But then the questions, I was lucky. All the questions they asked me, well, not all the questions they asked me I could answer, but the ones I couldn't answer, I just said, I can't answer that one. They had to relate to cocktails. I I hated cocktails. I didn't want anything to do with cocktails. Uh, But I I had to know a few I knew, and I knew a few, but I couldn't answer the detailed question. But, uh, you know, about the theory of how you make maceration versus infusion. People don't realize like for that. an MS, you have to go beyond wine to other beverages. Yeah, and we had cigars, too, at that time. Right. Cigars were fun no for more? me. No, we don't do that anymore. But back then... Because you can't smoke anywhere. Yeah, we had to do Cuban cigars, too, even though we couldn't smoke Cuban cigars. But it was really about Cuban because all the examiners were English. It was based on the English test. No deviation, so we had to do exact, and it was the first time it was given in the United States, so we had the same questions they had in England, when it focused a lot on service of cigars. So cigar, knowledge of cigar, uh, Pagos, you know, and, and, and the different growing regions in Cuba, right. and the different shades, and sure. the vitellos, and all that. That's interesting. One of the things you didn't talk about, you talked about all the competitions in the MS, you were heavily involved in hospitality. Yes. Tell me, you know, take me chronologically through while you were doing all this, mm-hmm. you were on the floor of some of the best and most interesting places. Well, yes. In, well, in Seattle, when I started, I was I started off at a great restaurant, which is on the waterfront. And they did like we did like almost uh, 800 covers a night uh, with uh, with sailors businessmen, all sorts of walks of life. It wasn't very expensive, but they had the most extensive wine list in the region in Seattle, and it was international, and the owner had been a sommelier, and so he had uh, six different wine glasses. Wow. And we, it was an amazing... Ahead of his time, we had a cru- we, Yeah, way ahead of his time. We had a, a Cruvenet machine, the first one west of the Mississippi. The mayor of Seattle came to inaugurate it. <laughs> we weren't far from City Hall, and so uh, he came down, and uh, we had a great time. And then uh, I, I was recruited by Four Seasons Hotel, so I went there. And I, also at the same time, I was consulting before the Four Seasons recruitment. I'd already started to consult for Sheraton, and they had a great she- young chef woman named Kathy Casey. She was on the cover of every magazine, every food magazine at that time, because she was so dynamic. And uh, and I was the wine. Uh, the, I bought the wine for her restaurant at another hotel at, at at Fuller's Restaurant in the Sheraton at the time in Seattle. It was great, and. Uh, and then I was hired by Four Seasons, and they hired me as just as an employee, not as a manager or anything. But they paid me a lot more than, than the Red Cabbage where I'd worked, uh, where we had the great wine program it paid, and they wanted me to develop theirs. So I was free still to consult for the Sheraton and still work at the Four Seasons because I wasn't a manager. If I had been a manager, I would have been prohib- prohibited from have, working for any competition. But then one day, uh, the head of the operations for the whole company came to town, had dinner at Fuller's because they heard a lot of good things about Fuller's and the wine program there, and he wanted to check it out. And he saw my name on the menu of Fuller's as being the famous, uh-huh. you know, Larry Stone, you know, great uh-huh. smelly wine consultant for the wine, list, wine buyer for the list. 
And he came back to the hotel immediately, saw me on the floor of the restaurant, which is the Georgian room, and said, you're not allowed to work for other hotels. And I go, no, I'm just a line employee. I get, I'm an hourly employee. I'm allowed to do that in my spare time if it doesn't interfere with my duties here. And he said, you are? I go, yeah. And so from that point on, I was, uh, not only was I the uh, manager, and, and, uh, but I, they allowed me to end my contract with the other, re the other restaurant, but I could no longer do that again you know, with other mm. properties. And I was corporate. I, I, did, uh, I, I helped to develop the Four Seasons Wine Program in, you know, out of Toronto, you know, helped develop right. that for the first time. And then, I, then uh, I won the title, while I was doing that, I won the title of Best Sommelier in the World, and I went to Charlie Trotter's. In That's Chicago. in Chicago, which at that time was a relatively unknown, locally recognized, but not not known nationally, really. Right. But people were starting to talk about it. And then uh, I became... And Chicago wasn't the restaurant scene then that it is today with Grand Ockets and all these other... No, guys. no, no. They came out of Charlie Trotter's. They were an outgrowth yeah. of that. The, the thing that was there that was good was some French restaurants. They had Les Nomades, which is still there, run by Mary Beth Liccione and Roland, who worked at Le Francais. And Le Francais was the mother ship of all the great French chefs in the area. It was a Lyonnais chef, Jean Bancher, who was an amazing inspiration for American chefs at the time, somewhat like Jean-Louis Paladin a decade later. And, uh, but he did old Lyonnaise food with a lot of li uh, liaisons made with foie gras and an egg and very rich dishes, traditional, old style. Yeah. And the service was right out of Lyon, the, with the Guéridon and the French waiters. And it was amazing. I ate there a, a few times before it changed hands. So, but, but, but what was different, the different departure was that when Charlie Trotter came on board, he rejected all that. He wanted to do what was new. He wanted to do what Freddy Girardet was doing in Switzerland. He wanted to do what was happening in Eugénie Les Bains. He wanted to do what Marco Pierre White was doing in London. He wanted to do what Georges Blanc was doing with vegetables. So he was trying to start that in Chicago, of all places. Now, New York would have been a different story, but in Chicago, it was unheard of. Right. So when he did this, it was, and, and he got me, because his dishes were a little wild, and they didn't work with wine. But when he got together with me, the idea was to make dishes that worked as creative entities on their own right, very modern, very groundbreaking, but also would work with wine. Because he felt he needed the wine, the wine-loving community to come and support the restaurant, and that's how he and because he, he liked wine himself, and he, so it was both personal as well as for a business reason, and because uh, he had been shunned kind of by the wine community because they tried dinners and he'd have all these wild things, and they said no, it doesn't work, and so I was the one because of my background. Not only did I learn about wine, but because of my mother's farm background, and her and the the uh, I should say the empathy or the sympathetic relationship between Romanian culture. And French culture, my mother learned French and Latin when she was young, because wow. Romanian is a Latin language. Many uh, Romanian authors write in French. So Ionesco, the rhinoceros, the avant-garde player of the 60s, he's Romanian. Paul Celan, the Nobel Prize winning poet, he was Romanian. And so uh, she learned French and Romanian. She taught French and Latin, actually. So. Uh, I, I learned all the mother sauces. When I was like starting to work in restaurants, I mean, when I was young, she taught me how to cook French, French things, pot au chou and that kind of thing. And, uh, and you know, I, when I was in the business, I said, oh, we have this thing with Baronet. She said, oh, you shouldn't eat much of that. I said, I love it. I said, why? She said, like mayonnaise. It's, all, it's an emulsion sauce. You, and she said, these are all the emulsion sauces. They're Mornay, Choron, you know, Bernays, you know, Hollandaise, uh, mayonnaise. They're, all, they're not something you should take lightly, you know. And I go like, 
Oh yeah, they are. And then she said, "Yeah, all the stuff I taught you, all these these are the these are the families of sauces," and and I, so I got a book uh, a book on uh, on a, uh, the uh, encyclopedia of uh, culinary encyclopedia from La Russe, and uh, I studied all the the families of things and you know to further my education. Jesus. So, you're a Charlie Trotter. How long? I was at Charlie for five years, and I went back though. Uh, after uh, when you leave Charlie and he likes you and he thinks you're a valuable member of the team, he doesn't leave. Uh, you don't usually leave him on a very good note. He didn't like that I was leaving, and so he didn't talk to me. I wrote a book with him, and then I was taken off the authorship, and he had it be re re rewritten by Joe Spillman. Because you left him. Because I left him just as it was coming out. I was already in Galley Proust, but I had to leave. Uh, my Tough mother. Guy that way. What? Wow. Tough well, guy that way. Well, I understand from a business point of view. You, you know, I was opening another restaurant of my own. In not, San Francisco, right, not competitive though. That's well, not with him in Chicago, but, but but I was no longer with him, so he had my successor, Joe Spellman, rewrite, redo, and rewrite all the the information on wine, and I understand that from his point. I don't. I never held that against him. I understood that. I felt like, well, that's kind of. I wish that weren't. I wish he weren't that way. But that, you know, many chefs and many operators, restaurateurs are that way. It was a purely business decision. And um, I get it. yeah, and we remained. Uh, he didn't talk to me for a couple of years, but after that, I kept. He, I'm the only sommelier he kept inviting back year after year to all the events. I when he had an that. anniversary or a special chef uh, dinner, he would invite me back and pay me to come. That. And the last year of his business, I quit my other jobs and I went to Chicago and I spent my entire year helping him close wine down his restaurant and sell the wine cellar. Right, I remember that, and sadly, he passed away as a young man. He passed away a year later, but he had been sick already for yeah. five years. No one knew about it. It was a hidden secret from everybody except his wife. I found out about it because he and his wife discovered it one anniversary dinner when he disappeared for many hours, and we found him unconscious because he was uh -huh. jogging. He'd been jogging, and he had a, a, a stroke, basically, while jogging because he had an aneurysm, a deep brain aneurysm, and that finally did him. All right, so let's finish up on the work part. So you leave Charlie at some point. You go to San Francisco. Interesting opportunity. Open a restaurant with some cool people. Mm -hmm. um, to my recollection, it was a good restaurant scene, but not what it is now. So I think you were a little ahead of the curve. We were ahead of the curve in the wine business. When I came, most chefs in the area said, we don't, you know... This won't work. A sommelier that's a key part of the wine. No, that's true. There were there were not that many master sommeliers either. You have to remember, I was the ninth, and in San Francisco they had quite a few. They had probably the biggest concentration of master sommeliers in America at that time. There were four, I think. We had Emmanuel Comigi, we had Evan Goldstein, we had uh, me, and then we had oh Mike Bonacorsi came a little bit later, and uh, you know it was a, it was a. A, a very small scene. There was one more, Peter Granoff, who now has a retail shop, and that was it. And we had the biggest concentration. That was huge. That was like more than, that was about half the master sommeliers in the country, God. you know, right there. But still, it was an unknown thing because, uh, you know, Evan Goldstein was at the same restaurant as Peter Granoff. That, uh, that was the square, square one right. that, that his mo mother Joyce ran. And uh, when I was brought in, that was a unique thing. People thought, well, that's an expense no one needs. The chef said, it won't work, no one cares. Wine, everyone has wine here, they bring their own wine. And then I started it, and we, you know, like at Trotter's, 50% of our revenue came from wine. I 
Charlie kept trying to make wine food more important than wine, but I kept matching it, you know. So <laughs> it, it was a competition, and yeah. he, and then uh, That's it, how it, same a wine thing. Program and is with Tracy, right. D, yeah, wine program is a good if it's run well right. and you have someone smart doing it and can sell it, and knows that and sells what they buy, not just keeps a collection of something that sits there. Then it can work very well, and it can be also be a bank account. If the, in bad times you don't buy wine, you just start depleting your cellar a little bit, and you can still make right. money and not have to spend more. But uh, but with uh, in in San Francisco, it worked out really well. And pretty soon, I had all these young people coming to me: Rajat Parr, Sarah Floyd, you know, people of that caliber. Christy Dufo came around. She was working at uh, Gary Danko, but uh, you know, I helped Gary, Gary Danko out. I was with Gary. When he started, I didn't ever work for him, but Renee Nicole Kubin, who worked at Trotters, was one of his first and most lasting sommeliers. And so there was a big community, many of whom I helped mentor at one point or another, and it kept growing. And so out of that community, there are more, there's a ripple effect, more people, more people got into wine. Today, you know, there's so many people who want to be sommeliers because, to a certain extent, the profession has gotten notoriety and fame. You know, people are famous. Restaurants used to be temples. Yeah. Chefs became rock stars. Yeah. Then sommeliers became notables. Yeah, we're, we're still know, not at the same level as chefs. Chefs no, I know, have but, first but, billing but, everywhere we go. You know, I think the yeah. age of social media, yeah. all these. Um, all right, so. Lingua we, Franca, are we going to talk about Lingua yes, Franca? Yes, I was just going to tell you that. That's, you know, we don't have a lot of time, so we have to condense it. So um, you eventually leave Rubicon to start a winery, Lingua Franca. Um, what year was that? Well, I, when I, when they, but the year that uh, Charlie uh, closed the restaurant, I had approached, a, a, I had already worked at a place, I, I, I ran Francis Ford Coppola's place. The partners, you know, Francis Ford and my restaurant were Francis Ford Coppola, Robin Williams, and Robert De Niro. Right. And Francis hired me to be the gérant, sort of like a family representative and general manager of Rubicon Estate, which it was called at the time. Now it's renamed again back to the original name, Inglenook. Inglenook. And, uh, and I worked there until 10, and then, in, uh, and then in 10, I went to run the company that I helped to create in 1996 called Eveningland. And I based it on one, specifically, the one that I had the most confidence in was the vineyard in Oregon, Seven Springs. And I said, you should just buy a piece of land near Seven Springs. Don't buy Seven Springs. Buy a piece of land near there, as close as you can get to it, and, and start a vineyard of your own. Because I said, that place is so magic. that's what originally attracted you. No, I, I'm from Seattle, so I knew the area from the 70s. Okay. I started going to Oregon in my childhood. And oh, so when, you were... when the Oregon wine industry began, the best vineyard I ever identified in my career early on, after tasting wines from Oregon for 20 years, was in 1987, was the Seven Springs, the first release of Seven Springs wines as made by David Adelsheim at Adelsheim. And I thought it was the best wine he had ever made. And I said, I thought it was the best wine I'd ever had from Oregon, and, he's, and it wasn't his own vineyard. So I, I, when I started Evening Land as a proposal, I said, you want to start a winery based on Seven Springs. And I, when I was there, I looked across the street. It was an already established vineyard, but it was not in perfect condition because it had been established in stages in an early part. Across the street was an equally good property, and what I did was to develop, buy it and develop it. And today, it, within what year was that? That was in 2012. And today, we're all around the world. We're in 38 foreign markets, and the capital is the Lingua most Franca. important. Lingua Franca is in the best restaurants, three-star restaurants in Paris, 
and in Valence at peak. So let's talk about the wine. I mean, was it your intention to make a Burgundian-style wine? I mean, there's a connection to my a relationship with Dominique Lafont. Yes. The reason I wanted a French team, my winemaker is French. He worked at DRC and at Domaine du Jacques. Dominique Lafont for white wines. We have... Our vineyard manager is French. I, I had Mimi Castile for a while from Bethel Heights. She's the greatest thinker about terroir and about I farming. Ben, is that her son? No, Ben is her cousin. Ben cousin. is the he wine was maker. at the. I saw you at the wine, wine and spirits. Yes, ben, ben is the winemaker, right. and she, that's her cousin. Right. So, and but anyway, so she's a great thinker about farming, regenerative farming. So I wanted her, and we had her, and now we have. But the reason I wanted a French team is not, that I didn't want to make French wine. I'm not making Burgundian wine. I'm making Oregonian wine. I'm making so wine that, of terroir. That's how you answer the question. Yes. Wine of terroir. My wine is to be a transparent expression of the exceptional terroir we have at, at Lingua Franca Estate and in the Old Amity Hills, and that part of the Old Amity Hills that stretches from Christum to me. And, or maybe to Bethel Heights and me. It's, 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 it's the best part, I think, of Oregon because we have the Van Duzer Corridor winds coming over the hill. It's like air conditioning all summer. We face due east. We have the longest, we have much longer summer hours of sunlight than Calif anywhere in California be, and the cool temperatures. Like that, yeah. So we can have a fully ripe wine at 12 or 12 and a half degrees, fully ripe. In fact, even sometimes too ripe at 12 and a half. And yet the alcohols are, t are the, the flavor expression is amazing, and, and the colors are beautiful. But here's another thing that's important. Um, you observe some pretty strict practices in the yes. vineyards and in the cellar. Talk to me about that quickly. Well, we, we try to practice, we do practice at minimal of organic farming, organic. We try to do bio biodynamic things as well, but we think it's thoughtful application of biodynamic principles, which includes some organic techniques for example, it's not permitted under biodynamic farming to use cinnamon oil sprays for fungicides. So if you have mildew, you have to use sulfur. Sulfur is a very destructive compound. We'd rather use cinnamon oil. And cinnamon oil is not permitted, though, in biodynamic, but it is permitted in organic farming. So we, we vary what we do from any specific, you know, regimented, approved... You take best practices take on practices. the table, which are all good, uh -huh. but not always agree. We, we do what we think is best for the vineyard, best for the fruit, best for the environment, most of all. So we, we don't apply any rodenticides. We, we let the hawks and the owls and, and snakes kill the rodents. We have we have fox we have uh, rabbits we don't or quail but we let the foxes eat it we let the hogs eat it it's an ecosystem and we let it be strong and and around us it creates more biodiversity which creates very beautiful expression of terroir flavors coming from that specific site rather than trying to just make it eradicate things and let it grow that's not what it's about it's about the things that come from the place right so we have to wrap up but how many wines are you making. Well, we make we sell in the market about six wines, six wines. but we have a, we make at least ten a year. But we sell only we sell a few of them only at the winery to people who buy online at linguafranca.wine because that's uh, where if people want more information. Yeah, if they want more, they can get linguafranca dot wine wine not dot com dot wine. I'm all about wine. I'm not about com. Okay, Larry, we have to wrap up. I could sit here with you for hours. So look out for Larry's wines in Lingua Franca. I think you'll enjoy them a lot. Um, thank you to Larry Stone.
Larry Stone is a master sommelier. He's the founder of Lingua Franca and obviously has a very colorful background. Um, I'm Sam Benruby, and you've been listening to The Great Nation on Heritage Radio. Thank, Thank you. you, Sam. Thank you, Larry. This episode is brought to you by Levo, the world's most intelligent at-home infuser. It's super easy to use to make infusions for cooking, candies, cosmetics, and herbal medicines. When the box showed up, I was excited to try it out as I've heard good things about the machine. It looks like a space-age coffee maker on the counter, and having it out makes me want to infuse everything. I've got plans for the hot peppers on my counter and the sage I picked from the garden before the first freeze last week, along with some other choice herbs and spices. I think everyone on my list is going to get infused oils this year. So far, I've used it for cannabis, basil, and orange peel infused oils and butter. The machine even has dry and activate functions for the highest potency and stability in your infusions, and you can connect through Wi-Fi to track your progress and record your recipes and share with the Levo community. Learn more at levooil.com. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey on the Heritage Radio Network. We are at the Naples Winter Wine Festival, benefiting the Naples Children and Education Foundation. Our guests are Jean-Nicolas Mayo from Domaine Mayo Camusé and Nicholas J. and Jay Boberg from Nicholas J. Welcome to the Grape Nation, guys. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for taking time out of, you know, a pretty busy uh, and uh, good... Um, festival so i have both of you together i think the important thing is jay i need you to tell me how you guys met and you know how that became a wine thing we met in philadelphia in 1987 so more than 30 years ago do you remember what or, it was or was it a dinner or a concert I exactly or something what it was jean nicola was attending penn getting his master's degree in energy economics and okay. he his classmate or a student that was going through the master's program is none other than my sister ah. jill boberg okay and i was in philadelphia with a band and my sister said she was having some of her friends over for a dinner dinner party and uh she invited me to come over before the show and i met jean nicola and that was the start of our friendship so what were you doing at that point? You were finishing school? Yes, I was finishing school. I knew I was... Was this uh, grad work? or Yes. Okay. Um, were you at university in France? Yes, I okay. was at uh, business school in France. I knew and I had studied also at uh, Dijon University and done uh, an uh, enology degree. So I knew I was going to go back to the family uh, domain. I was not sure this would be lasting and going on for uh, that long. And uh, both the business degree in Paris and that degree in Philadelphia was a kind of a backup plan, uh, if you wish. So uh, at the time, I was... Um, Back so up to what? Like your father's going to throw you out or something? Yeah, well, it's, it's a good... Uh, yes, it's a good family story, actually, because... We were in uh, the position of uh, really deciding within the family whether we would keep the domain or not. And we uh, had come for, uh, to the conclusion for various reasons that somebody at the family needed to be on the spot. 
and <laughs> I was designated to be this one in the family. And More but, family choice than your choice. Like, yes. you're the guy. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. And you're the guy, you know, you're the only one to do it, to, to be able to do it, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, my father had said, well, you know, if you don't like it uh, uh, in Vaux if you don't like the business, I need you two, three years on the spot, and then we'll find a solution. But at least... Uh, the domain will have um, uh, will be started. Right. Um, so that was uh, that was the the point I was at at at, at that moment. Right. So when you returned after school, you jumped right into the yes, business. Yes, absolutely. Yes, beginning I, of '89. Yes. That was '89. Yes. Wow. I'm going back a little. Now this guy has a wine background. <laughs> you don't have a wine background, but you're now a winemaker and a wine guy. Talk to me a little about, you know, what you did. I mean, you're not doing it now, but for many years you were in the music business. Uh, yes. Not just schlepping records. No, I wasn't schlepping records. I uh, started a record label called IRS Records with my partner, Miles Copeland. And Now, uh, Miles I, is Stewart's brother? Stuart Copeland's older brother, right. who was the manager of the police. Right. And I had worked with the police when I was in college. I was the concert booker at UCLA and had booked a lot of shows. And I met Miles and worked with the police. And then at one point, he approached me about starting a label and some crazy offer, like, I can't really pay you anything, but we'll co-own it. And I was either stupid enough or smart enough to think that that was a very good idea. And we well, launched idea-wise, I get that, but it's something you wanted to do. I mean, well, you I were, was a you classical were, guitar player. I spent all my money on records and so music was definitely like, a direction that made oh, sense. Music was my passion. I right. mean, music was a huge passion. So, I was fortunate in the sense that I was able to turn my avocation into a vocation. I never would have thought I would have actually been able to make a living doing it, but. We signed Doingo Boingo and the Go-Go's, and then I signed R.E.M., and we were off to the races. What year did the label form? 1979. 79. Our first release was the Buzzcocks, Singles Going good stuff. Steady. You haven't named a bad band. I mean, Danny, what's his name from Oingo Boingo? He's like the biggest music scorer for movies, right? He is indeed. <laughs> it's crazy. Very um, talented guy. Yeah. Um, so you do that for how long? Well, I, I just want to point out, I was introduced to wine as well in college um, and and really became interested in wine. I mean, it, it, all the way through my music career, I was sort of known as the wine guy in the music industry. I used to... But the touch point was in school, in college? Yes. Was actually, it a friend or my a group? Or? Worked, my roommate worked for a wine distributor in the summer. and So he, he had access. On, on, a, on a wine thing, and, and I saw food and wine together in a way that sort of the light bulb went off and I loved to cook as it was. And um, that started a, a lifelong sort of passion for wine. And because I was traveling so much and I had made some interesting friends early on, I met Kermit Lynch very early. I met a bunch of different people, this guy at the Burgundy shop in New York, and they would introduce me to different producers and different people. And then when I would travel with the bands or travel for, for work, Look I would for go wine. regions. So right. yeah, I've been to many, many different, I mean, Australia, New Zealand, France, Germany. I mean, I've been to a lot of different wine regions. And uh, in fact, even within the music business, 
when we would uh, do events for like radio programmers or for retailers, and we were of course competing against the Warners and the Sonys and right. the big companies, my angle for little IRS, the indie, was I would invite winemakers to be our guests and we would do wine dinners. Jean Nicola actually even came mm. over and attended mm. one as, mm. as our guest. And so all the radio station people would come to our wine dinner. Because it was unique, cool. It was unique and, yeah. and cool. And but then, did people appreciate it? Absolutely. I mean, they knew that you were putting an effort in and bringing guys like, hey, these guys have great wine. There was a shocking uh, amount of overflow or, or inter interaction between music and arts people and wine people. And um, and actually, to go to your second part of your question, when Jean Nicole and I embarked upon this, uh, and I started actually being in the wine business versus being a wine uh, uh, someone, a wine guy and yeah. buying wine and drinking wine and, and talking about wine. One of the things I noticed was how similar the businesses uh, are, or at least were. Music is no longer a physical product, it's a digital product, but back when you were selling mu music through record stores and you had distributors in each state and each country and you were dependent upon ra radio uh, programmers to play your records on the radio, not too dissimilar than being dependent on sommeliers putting your wine it's on the wine It's a similar setup. And getting your, your wine a, into it, wine shops and, it's a and good, so forth. Uh, it's a good point because you saw the business change like nothing else. Wine really hasn't changed much. No, I hope it doesn't go digital. No, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. <laughs> um, when you were in Philly and, and met Jean Nicolas, did you realize like this guy's from you know a great French Burgundy yes, family. Yes, I, I didn't. I had had. Um, I believe I'd had a male wine before. I think Kermit or Martine. Somebody turned me on to the the, the domain, and so mm. I knew of it. But I, I honestly really couldn't afford those wines. But Henri Jaillet was they, making the wines. They and were I a knew lot cheaper that. then. Well, you'll tell me yes, a little yes, about yes, Jaillet yeah. and you know the effect yeah. that he has. So you're you're part of this, you know, legacy. I mean, uh, yes. I can't. Mm you know, compliment or give enough high praise. I mm. mean, it's one of the great Burgundy houses, um, you know, truly one of the more celebrated wines. I'm just curious why you decided to branch out and why Oregon? Some of it's obvious, you know, because Pinot, Burgundy and mm -hmm. all that, but was Jay the influence or? Yes, of course, yes. Um, I think that was a, an opportunity I thought I, uh, uh, I could not miss. Of course, I was cautious at first because I really wanted to, uh, um, to, to um, capitalize on my experience and with the reputation of the domain, I wanted to, um, to make sure we could make great wine. But this is, I guess, this is something I had, you know, a kind of yearning I had in me, and of, uh, and um, Burgundy. It's um, difficult to expand in Burgundy um, because uh, uh, when we started our um, restarted our uh, family domain, and we had a lot of investments to do. So, uh, wait, uh, back up for a second. Why do you have to restart? I mean, what happened that there was that change or prompted that? Well, um, my father inherited the domain from the Camusay family in 1959. Back then, um, it was a domain that was organized with tenants. The Camusay ah. family was not directly working uh, on the domain. And my father kept that arrangement. Uh, he had a career in Paris, and that was very practical for him. And that was part of uh, the decision process for, of, of me going back to, um, to, to, to the domain because 
that arrangement was uh, was becoming a little bit more fragile in the in the 80s and so we decided we would take over progressively as our tenants uh, retired. So you outright yes. owned it or controlled it? Yes, yes. How long of a process was that? That was, um, that was arguably a 20-year process, but wow. that, that, was, that was very, uh, you know, in the first uh, six, seven years, that was very quick. But then we had one tenant uh, uh, who was a bit younger than the others and lasted until uh, 2008. Wow. So uh, we, we had a lot of investment to do, and uh, then uh, uh, not, not necessarily uh, a lot of money to invest in buying, uh, in buying vineyards. I had started also a uh, negotiant business uh, in Burgundy uh, in 1999. That is, we were buying grapes. You, uh, you, you could go wherever you want yes, to put together yes. versus your but, own properties. Yes, but that um, to, to make that um, development properly, I thought, uh, I came to the conclusion it had to be kept relatively small and relatively uh, modest because uh, if you want to do that properly in uh, the same spirit as uh, as uh, you grow grapes in your own domain um, this is this is the conclusion i came to so basically you know growing in 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 burgundy if you wanted to to maintain the quality was going to be very slow so i had this this uh, this really this uh, this uh, Envy, this this yearning in me to do, to start something and something else, and um, but Oregon because it made sense. Were you looking at other? Yes, Oregon because it made sense, and because I had this opportunity with with Jay. And Jay was Oregon. Yes. Were you open with Jean Nicola as to where, or it kind no, of pointed to Oregon? It, 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 Oregon was the place that I felt that at least we could make the wine that I wanted to drink. I, I thought that California was going to be more challenging, not only from a climate standpoint and, and, and the type of wines, because there are some areas of California where you yes. can make a cool climate. Sonoma uh, Coast, uh, maybe. Know, but, but few. But also there were the economics. Um, and the economics in California are extremely Property-wise, just Costs, to acquire? Yeah. everything. The vineyards, everything. And... You know, people joke with me all the time, you know, how do you get a small fortune? Start out with a large right. fortune and go in the How do you make business. a million in wine start mm. with five? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I, I certainly didn't want to be that guy, and John Nicola had no interest in being that guy. <laughs> and so um, Oregon made sense not only from, first and foremost was we felt we could make a world-class wine there once we'd done the research. Secondly, is that you had a community that was um, up and coming and was doing, we thought, all the right things in terms of yes. Pinot Camp yes. and IPNC and very collaborative. What year is this when you start literally roaming the land? 2012. Okay, so seven years ago, mm. eight, seven, uh, eight years ago, yeah. maybe longer. Yeah, yeah, eight, nine. But tell me, go back for a second, who really instigated the idea of doing a wine and a label? Was it you to him, let's do this? Was it you, Jay, to Jean-Nicolas? Well, the, the, the project evolved somewhat. Um, at first, it, uh, it was, uh, there was a question of, uh, of uh, 
uh, of buying a label? You were involved in a project that was going a, a much bigger project. Initially? Was, initially, that was to buy an existing label. And that did not work. And um, that did not work. Uh, and we were, at this point, um, both um, a little frustrated and said, uh, you know, we had studied. And uh, so Jay said, well, you know, we, we could do that ourselves. You know, uh, we could, uh, we don't really need, after all, uh, to, uh, to, to, to have an existing label. We could start our own label. So that, uh, that, uh, that changed uh, uh, a lot of the picture, and of course, uh, that was m much more modest. But, but in uh, retrospect, that's a right it's a better yes. place yes. where you want yes. it. I mean, yes. you build it from the ground up yes. with the vision, right? Yes, absolutely. Versus and also, it's very true to us. I mean, we've been able to start from scratch, which of course has its challenges. Sure. But it also allows us to. Uh, have the story be authentic and, and, and have it be the way that we want, which now exactly, I mean, we yes. started out you know, now, the evolution from the first vintage to now having six vintages in. And we just, you may or may not know, but we bought a, a piece of property that has uh, uh, 52 acres that we're going to be able to plant where and a, and a barn that we're in what, the process right of now of renovating into a production facility in the Dundee Hills. So you have vines in Dundee, and you're going to put a winery there. We've been buying fruit in Dundee. We don't own it. Okay. But we're we're going to start planting our own vineyard in Dundee, um, as well. Okay. So I mean that's a big evolution for us. I mean if you think, 2014, you know we made uh, whatever you know less than 2,000 cases, and we were sourcing the fruit. But then we bought our first vineyard, Bishop Creek. Um, which was one of the vineyards that we were coveting, and that came up for sale. And now, uh, last year, at the end of last year, we bought uh, a piece of land where we can now build our winery and uh, plant vineyards as well. So that's going to be very exciting because we've been working with existing vineyards so far, and which uh, are are great, uh, have a display great character, but starting really from, from scratch is another uh, adventure that is going to be absolutely thrilling. So the objective is your own vineyards? Yes, I, I think we'll continue to buy yes, fruit. Yes, you'll do from, both. We have long-term yes. relationships with and these And you're happy with the practices the and the, oh, yes, the, I'm happy the product and yes, all. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know what you want. Well, I think we've, uh, we've uh, become hooked uh, to some of these vineyards. Yeah. And, uh, uh, we like uh, we we love the wine. Uh, well, let's talk about the wine. When you decided to make a wine, do you naturally or typically say this is going to be a Burgundian wine, or you have to look at the site and the terroir and make a wine that expresses that, or both? I mean, what was the vision of the type of wine? I, and that's a question for both of you, because obviously, Jay, you too, you know, here's what I think I'd like to make, too. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm perhaps going to disappoint you, but there was no vision okay. <laughs> at first. No, that no makes me feel good, because yeah. we're not always all prepared, right? <laughs> no, there was no vision. I, there was really the, uh, the idea of being uh, ready to, um, to watch what would... Uh, 
come from uh, these uh, these vineyards and see what would be the outcome. I was not going. Uh, I was certainly not coming to Oregon saying, "Well, I want to make Burgundy in Oregon." This is this this would have been a failure from the start, and not possible, and not possible. <laughs> and so, uh, so you carried none of the Jair philosophy into the I wine. I do. I do. I do. I do. It's. Uh, uh, Absolutely, it's uh, the, the canvas of um, of techniques are the same in Burgundy and Oregon. But I didn't know exactly what to expect, and I really let within that canvas. I really let the, the vineyards ex, uh, express themselves, and uh, and hoped uh, that it would come up with uh, with things I I liked and that uh, people would like to. Uh, but I was—I'm not really crafting a wine in in a certain direction. I'm uh, doing the wine and see how it goes and say, well, you know, uh, it's great. This is—we have a great structure there in in a great natural structure. That would be the the, the 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 Bishop Creek, for example. Let's see how we can refine, fine tune that character uh, with the Dundee Hills. So it's a blank canvas in a way. It's yes. like you know, let's look at what's here and yes. we'll make the wine based yes. on. Yes, yes, and we'll we'll take what uh, what comes from the vineyard. Hope that it's great and. We've uh, we've come across great uh, great outcomes from time to time, and and refine and work uh, and see how we can even do better afterwards. I think um, just to expand expand on that a bit, um, what you're really asking, Sam, we didn't go into it to make a particular product, and certainly there are a lot of wines. In the and marketplace. you had a template of some sort if you wanted, well, or the what expertise. We had, what yeah. we had is the expertise. Right. I mean, I had a partner who is you know one of the great makers of Pinot Noir in the world, and and as he said, I mean, he, we went into it um, seeing what the vineyards offered. But I think it's important to know that we had drank a lot of wine together. Mm. And um, he, when he would come to California to do his marketing for Mayo Camise, he would stay with me. He, I, I got to be his plus one at, at dinners he would go to and so forth. And so it's a good he one. knew my palate. Mm. And we like the same things. I right. mean, we in terms yes. of the, the style of wine, we, we both have um, the same goals. And I think... When people ask me the question that you did, you know, well, so what, what, were, what kind of wine were you trying to make? And the answer is we were trying to make a wine that we wanted to drink. And you were at the point where you know each other so well, it kind of was a natural... We have very similar taste. I mean, yes, I think we're yes, shooting yes. for the same things. So if, if you put five wines on the table and had us all d d drink them, had each of us drink them, mm -hmm. we would probably end up picking the right. same wines mm -hmm. that we, mm -hmm. we that we like. I mean, it, it, we have very similar taste, and I think it's and important. that's it's all still working. Yes, yes, yes. 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 You're not. Yes. You, yes. Your vision is shared still, yes, and no, you're no, happy no. with the. Uh, I, I know it tastes better now. Okay, and, uh, well that's that's an evolution yes, too. Yes, yes, yes. You know, personality, taste, mm. all of that stuff. Um, you mentioned different things, but I want to tie it together a little. Let's talk about the wine specifically. I mean, are you making what four wines or how many? Yes, four, four, five, four, four five. sites or yes, we make three single vineyards. We make, let's talk about yes. tick them off. So, what are the vineyards? So we have our estate vineyard, Bishop Creek, uh, in um, Yamil Carlton. We have the Nisa vineyard in the Dundee Hills and Mamtazi vineyard in uh, McMinnville. 
We also make a uh, blend uh, of uh, all the wines. Uh, we of buy those three sites? Of those or whatever you decide yes, you want. Three sites plus... Five others. Five others. We have eight vineyards altogether for which we source fruit. And not... I'm confused, but that's me. There are three single vineyard designates? Yes. Yes. The way and the way yes the way it worked is that our uh, focus was to be uh, to work a blend, to um, really um, be um, to launch the brand, to launch the, the 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 style of the wine, and work really a, a blend that would really uh, uh, represent uh, the, the spirit of uh, the Willamette Valley. But in in that during that process, we came through. I came through really um, wines which I thought were um, were remarkable, uh, had great character, and that I really also wanted to to show. And this is how we we, we decided we would show we'd, we'd carve a small piece of uh, uh, these three vineyards to really show them and show the diversity of right. style and and. Uh, how how great and and different the offerings and show were. the elements of the Willamette Valley. Mm. So our Willamette Valley is really meant to be. Those eight vineyards were the result of what we thought were the best representation, the finest sites, the finest fruit, and the idea was to blend them together in a way that created this sort of penultimate expression of the vintage. So it's slightly different amounts of each vineyard from vintage to vintage to vintage, but the same vineyards. Right. And so Jean-Nicola uh, is able to blend and sort of adjust the vintage, adjust the, 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 the wine for each vintage to really, in theory, come up with the best wine for the Willamette Valley. It's, it's interesting that you're able to take advantage of different sites. I mean, yes. we know great wineries there that are just in, you know, one region. Mm. Um, how do we get the wines? I've actually seen them in good stores. Yes, we're in now about 15 states. Okay. Um, we're, uh, we're also available through our website, and we are able to ship to all but maybe four or five Tell states. Tell me the website. The website is wwwnicholas N-I-C-O-L-A-S. No H. Did I say H? No, I know. Oh. I'm saying that. These <laughs> people always in America, right. Nicholas is with an H. N-I-C-O-L-A-S-J-A-Y.com. Right. So you can go there. You and we're in a lot more. of great restaurants. I mean, we've had That's important, right? I think yeah. the exposure. Yes, 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 yes. It's always a great thing. We need it. We need it. Yes. Yeah. Really wonderful restaurants. Great. Um, I could sit here all day, hmm. talk about the family business, talk about yeah. the record business. Us but we got to wrap us up. Too. Yes. I know you too. have a busy day today. I want to thank uh, Jean-Nicolas Camose and Jay Boberg, um, their project together. And you got a little insight into it. Is Nicola J. It's a Oregon Pinot Noir, and we talked about how you can get it. Um, thank you guys for spending some time with us. Continued luck, good luck, thanks and success with yes, the winery. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Sam. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, 
heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.